Hello, everyone. We are going on 20 years now in our journey with BBNR to bring holistic health to the mainstream. It has really all come from a desire to find ways to flatten out the bumps in the road of our lives and be grateful for when days go well. So much innovation and insight is coming out on health and wellness on a daily basis. It's sometimes hard to keep up. We are so grateful for the speakers who join us on this podcast and to all of the guests that come to our Georgetown conference and to those that join us at Gasparilla every year to share their wisdom. At the end of the day, we hope that we have made you curious enough to try some of these tips in your day-to-day life. We hope that you felt their impact on your life as well as the lives of the people that you love. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Dr. Deborah Elkhorn is a psychologist, teacher, clinical consultant, and researcher who's been on the faculty of the EMDR Institute for more than 25 years. Michael Baldwin has worked in advertising for more than 35 years and has won numerous awards. He's the founder and principal of the branding and communication firm, Michael Baldwin, Inc. And they've gotten together to write the book, Every Memory Deserves Respect, about EMDR, the proven trauma therapy with the power to heal. Welcome, Deborah, and welcome, Michael. Dora and I are so excited to have you on Health Gig today. Thank you. Great to be here. This is so awesome to be able to talk to you because both Trisha and I were so intrigued by your book, Every Memory Deserves Respect. And we're really excited to talk about that today and your lives and your work. But I think we should begin at the very beginning. Tell us what EMDR therapy is and what the acronym stands for. EMDR stands for eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. It's a mouthful. It's an earful. Desensitization refers to the focus on reducing fear, anxiety, and distress. Reprocessing refers to the reevaluation or the restructuring of thoughts and beliefs and the transformation of self relative to past traumatic experiences. So reprocessing leads to resolution. It allows people to move the past into the past so they can live more fully and carry on in the present. EMDR was developed by psychologist uh, Francine Shapiro in the late 1980s, and she would ask clients to focus on a relevant traumatic memory and then instruct them to follow her fingers with their eyes as she moves them horizontally back and forth in front of their face, hence the name eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. And I can talk a bit more about the function of the eye movement component later in our conversation, if you'd like. But over the years, we've learned that in addition to eye movements, many other forms of back and forth stimulation, what we call bilateral stimulation, are also effective, like having a client listen to alternating tones, or tapping back and forth on a client's hands as they rest them in their lap. EMDR is a memory-focused psychotherapy that helps people deal with the impact and the legacy of trauma and adverse experiences in their lives. It's based on the idea that psychological problems are related to a failure to adequately process traumatic experiences and memories. And it's those 
unprocessed traumatic memories frozen in our nervous system that continue to affect how we perceive things, decisions we make, reactions we have, the beliefs we hold about ourselves and others. And the unprocessed memories directly lead to symptoms that cause ongoing distress. Even though EMDR is best known as an evidence-based treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder, it's also being used effectively to treat a wide range of disorders. When you talk about bilateral tones, that's like music, right? People could just YouTube bilateral tones or music and I think, was it David Grand's come up or isn't there different kinds of that? There are audio options that combine music and tones. So when you refer to bilateral tones, it's that kind of thing. Bilateral tones would be beeps or some kind of solid sound beep okay. from one ear to the other back and forth. That's what we mean by bilateral tones. How do you define trauma in the book? Like, how do you phrase it or describe trauma? Trauma is a part of life. Uh, and in our book, we define trauma quite broadly. We define it as any experience that feels overwhelming, that triggers strong negative emotions like shame or terror, and involves a sense of powerlessness or intense vulnerability. So when we talk about trauma, we may be talking about situations where something bad happened to you, emotional, physical, sexual abuse, traumatic loss, witnessing or experiencing violence, natural disasters, combat, medical trauma. But we also may be talking about situations where things were supposed to happen but didn't. So situations where you were not properly protected listened to, cared for, or valued, experiences of neglect, deprivation, abandonment, alienation. We talk about both big T, what we call big T shock traumas, and the cumulative effects of small T traumas, like criticism or betrayal or experiences involving humiliation or failure or aloneness, subtle microaggressions, as well as blatant discrimination or hostility. So examples in adulthood might include a divorce, losing a job, a, a difficult move, a discovery of a partner's affair. Examples in childhood might include feeling ignored, feeling different, feeling unable to measure up or powerless to control the craziness or the chaos in your family. And basically, the greater the number of adverse experiences that someone is exposed to, the greater the potential psychological and physical toll. And it's important to note that trauma is both objective and subjective. It's both what happened and how you experienced what happened. And no two people are going to respond to the same event in exactly the same way. It's very subjective. Over the course of a lifetime, most people experience trauma in one form or another. It doesn't mean that everyone is going to wind up with post-traumatic stress disorder or wind up needing to go to therapy to deal with that trauma, depending on who you are, your predisposition, your, the supports in your life, you may make your way through that trauma and be just fine. It really depends on many different factors as to whether you're going to wind up with a, a clinical diagnosis per se. But as you said too, the little T trauma, that's cumulative, right? Yes, yes. So something could happen, you make it through that, something else happens, you make it through that, but then it could start to build and you might not even really recognize it. 
Exactly. That makes so much sense. So how does your brain process a traumatic memory versus how our brains make sense of ordinary everyday challenges or obstacles? We process experiences every day without difficulty, right? Normal circumstances. Let's say we go to a party, we see our friends, at least we did before COVID, and we eat good food, we make conversation, and then we come home that evening and we reflect on the experience. We might talk to our partner about it. Maybe we go to sleep that night and we have a dream about it. But by the morning, we've moved through that experience. We put it up on the shelf. We move it into the past. Something very different tends to happen when we're talking about traumatic circumstances. When you're exposed to trauma and when you're exposed to overwhelming circumstances, those experiences get frozen or locked in our nervous system. And they get frozen along with the images, the feelings, the sensations, the thoughts that are part of that experience. The brain's information processing system is unable to digest the experience and other information held elsewhere in memory doesn't get connected in, doesn't get integrated, isn't available necessarily to help you make sense out of it. So when you get triggered, when traumatic memories get activated, the past becomes the present. People lose their adult present day grounding and perspective. So all of a sudden, they may find themselves feeling panicky, feeling frozen, feeling overwhelmed with shame, ready to fight, feeling like they're somehow 12 years old again, right? Old thoughts and feelings take over. I'm unlovable. I'm bad. I'm worthless. I'm unsafe or in danger. I'm helpless. I'm trapped. And for lots of people, when those kinds of feelings and those kinds of thoughts continue to create distress and pain, they wind up turning to things like drinking or drugs or self-injury to soothe themselves, to avoid, to numb out because it's so unbearable. You can understand why we might be interested in getting to those unprocessed trauma memories. Tell us more about EMDR therapy and what it involves. And if you are interested in wanting to get started, how does it begin? What, what happens? Early sessions involve taking a thorough history. The therapist takes a thorough history. We focus on establishing safety and trust within the therapeutic relationship. And we focus on resourcing and skill building work if needed to make sure that a client is ready to approach challenging emotional material. Most people don't show up saying, I want to work on my traumatic memories from age five. <laughs> show up saying, I'm miserable, I'm having marital problems, I'm depressed, anxious, I have PTSD symptoms. We tend to begin with the current distress and we float back using the emotions that the person's reporting, using the sensations they're experiencing in their body. We float back along these experiences, looking for the root, looking for the origins of the distress. We search for relevant memories to target. And once a target memory is identified, we activate the memory using a series of questions. And then we introduce sets of back and forth eye movements or sets of bilateral stimulation. So we ask questions like, what picture represents the worst part? What's the belief about yourself that comes up when you think about this experience? What are the feelings that come up? What are the sensations that come up? And once we've activated, we then move into the sets of bilateral stimulation. And sets usually last 30, maybe 30 to 60 seconds. And then we check in with the person. With every set of bilateral stimulation where the person's just focusing on the stimulation, 
the client is asked to notice what changes and to report on thoughts, feelings, sensations, impulses, insights, whatever comes up. The therapist invites the client to just notice, to be a passenger on a train, just watching the scenery go by, but always staying connected to the present moment, just witnessing from a distance. As the therapist, I'm saying to the client, it's old stuff, just notice. And um, no two people process in the same way. There's no supposed tos or shoulds, whatever comes up. Some clients remember things that they've not remembered previously. They process fear, grief, anger, guilt, shame. And whatever they're reporting, I bring them back and ask where they're feeling that. I remind them it's just a memory, but notice what you're experiencing in your body. And some people imagine spontaneously saying or doing what they never got to say or do previously. They might imagine raging or screaming at someone, running away, fighting back. Sometimes people spontaneously see their younger self and offer compassion and care. They're able to see things with a new perspective and really get in touch with that compassion for the first time for themselves, for their younger self. And the distress eventually decreases and relevant adaptive information located in other parts of the brain gets integrated. The goal is to be able to think about the memory at the end of the work without distress, to arrive at more positive beliefs about the self, about the world, and any remaining appropriate feelings become much more tolerable, much more manageable. So let's say you've lost someone in your life. There's still going to be sadness, but it's going to be much more tolerable and manageable. And then maybe the last thing I'll say is that EMDR therapy is a comprehensive psychotherapy. And we focused not just on past memories, but we then come to work on present triggers and situations in the present that are difficult. And eventually we help people prepare for future challenges, for situations in the future that may have been triggers in the past, may have been difficult in the past, but they want to take on these situations in the future. And so we help them to imagine playing a movie of themselves coping effectively in the future. And we help integrate that. How do we know these memories that are coming up are real? Because sometimes I try to remember things and I'm just not sure if I'm really remembering them properly. We don't struggle a lot with that in EMDR. We work with whatever emerges. We assume that memory is always changing. It's malleable, right? It's not absolute. And so When I talk with my clients and they ask questions like that, I typically say, we're not working toward absolute truth. EMDR is not a truth serum. We can't possibly know whether every last aspect of what is emerging is absolute truth, but we're working toward emotional truth. We're working toward personal truth. We work toward arriving at a place where a client has a narrative that feels coherent and appropriate for them. We don't struggle with that question. Clients arrive where they arrive by the end of the process. And and I think you said that it's learning to have compassion for that, for whatever that it was or is. So whether it's true or not true, it's just finding a way to find compassion for that. Is that right? Yes. Beautiful. Yes. Like, how long does it take to be cured? (laughs) 
Like how many <laughs> sessions? <laughs> well, of course, everyone asked that question as yeah. well. There's early research back in the 90s that made the point that if you have a single episode adult trauma, let's say a car accident or an assault, not chronic trauma, not got not ongoing trauma, you can knock out the PTSD related to that trauma in three to four sessions. So it's a very efficient therapy. And of course, the more trauma that someone has in their history, the longer treatment typically takes. But what I always say to people is no matter how long it's going to take, it's going to be efficient. It's going to move you through the material, I think, more fluidly than a lot of other forms of psychotherapy. We want to talk about the book, but before we do that, can you talk about the eye movements and EMDR? There's a lot of research substantiating the positive effects of eye movements. We know that eye movements reduce negative emotions and imagery vividness. We know that eye movements increase or facilitate the remembering of events, the recognition of true information, what we might think of as insight, discerning kind of distorted information for more true information. Eye movements increase flexible thinking or flexibility in thinking. And they also lead to positive neurophysiological changes. So the role of the pandemic now, how is that laying over everything? We're in a mental health crisis here in the U.S. and worldwide. People have been through just incredible hardships, losses, loss of work, loss of support. And for a lot of people, the loneliness, the sense of isolation and alienation have reactivated a lot of earlier life experiences, earlier losses, earlier periods of profound and utter aloneness. The current pandemic has brought us trauma in present day, but it's also activating significant old trauma for people. In your book, you've got that listed as one of them, pandemic stress, that it's real and it's there. So when someone would come to see you, or to do EMDR, you could start with that. But then, as you said, you go back to all the other things that might have accumulated. Exactly. If there are earlier life experiences that are relevant. I recently worked with a, a doctor who's been working in the hospital throughout the pandemic. And he came in because he was so distraught and having PTSD related to the loss of a couple of patients that he felt shouldn't have died. But Sure enough, what we discovered very quickly in our work together was that those traumatic losses and the sense of powerlessness that he felt dealing with the overwhelm of the situation in his hospital led to memories or triggered memories of growing up in a household where there was domestic violence and the powerlessness he felt as a little boy as his mother was being beaten by his father. So there's a good example of that intersection. Wow. So let's talk about the book and where you got the idea from and how you and Michael got together to partner in it. Maybe I'll jump in. This whole process started when I started with Dr. Jeffrey Magnavita. And just to be very clear for your audience, Debbie was not my therapist. She's my co-author. Dr. Jeffrey Magnavita was my therapist. And as I started my process with him in EMDR therapy, I started conceptualizing the key concepts for both trauma and EMDR as I came to understand them with an image on the right and very little text on the left. I'm a, I'm a visual thinker. Um, I couldn't read for the longest time as I was a kid. And I referred to these things as billboards. 
when I had, had about six of them, I shared them with Dr. Magavita. And he said, you know, Michael, these, first of all, these would be incredibly helpful for me and for my clients to be able to immediately convey concepts in a visual way. But also, I think this could be a book. So at that point, the only thing I needed to do was go out in the world and find an EMDR expert who would be willing to work with someone they've never met before in their life and write a book together, <laughs> which is exactly what I did. And Debbie is the person who came into my life. And that's where the process began. When I was thinking about creating it, it's because I had a hope that after hearing my story and the experiences of other clients that Debbie talks about in the book, people would feel more comfortable talking about their own stories. And in particular, I had hoped that men would understand that trauma may be at the root of many of their symptoms, like that were for me, and behavior patterns. My sense is that men often need permission or encouragement to share their vulnerability and to actually seek help. Michael's story and idea for a book were so compelling that I couldn't resist. I immediately got excited about creating a book, an EMDR book, unlike anything that had ever come before. And one that my clients would actually read, one that I could share with my parents who've never really understood what I do for a living, one that I could share with my primary care doctor and my chiropractor who've been asking me questions about trauma and EMDR for years. I imagined a truly accessible and user-friendly book and one that answers the kinds of questions that people new to therapy tend to ask, a book for those who self-identify as trauma survivors and also for those who can't quite figure out why they're depressed or anxious or unable to maintain relationships. You know, a book for EMDR therapists and non-EMDR therapists and a book for other caregivers, for physicians or lawyers or probation officers or educators as well. It's actually a, a very beautiful book, if a book about trauma can be beautiful. How did you decide on including these gorgeous pictures and why, and how did you come up with the format of it? Our book is written in two voices. We thought that it was really important to have the voice of a trauma expert, an EMDR expert, and the voice of a trauma survivor and client. So Michael shares his trauma history. He explains his symptoms, his struggles, his experiences with EMDR therapy. He offers a description of what recovery might look like. I provide an overview of trauma, post-traumatic symptoms, the process of recovery, and EMDR specifically. Every chapter begins with some description, some narrative from Michael. We wanted to really ground all of the information in the book in actual life story. And I share case vignettes from my own practice throughout the book as well. And as Michael mentioned, there are billboards throughout the book, about 60 of them, that are meant to bring the concepts of the book to life. There are seven chapters in the book. The first chapter is called, What is This Thing We Call Trauma? The second chapter is, How Does Trauma Affect Your Mind, Body, and Behavior? Where I talk about symptoms, the defenses people engage in to ward off memory and feelings. We talk about dissociation. The third chapter is, How Does Trauma Affect the Brain? The fourth chapter is what is EMDR therapy and how does it work, where we talk about the phases of EMDR. I go over some of the research, some of the theories about why EMDR works. The next chapter is called Contemplating Treatment. Am I ready? Can I really do this? And in that chapter, I talk about some of the fears and the beliefs that people have that might 
block them from engaging effectively in therapy. And we challenge some of the myths about EMDR therapy, some of the misinformation that's out there. The next chapter is called Keeping Your Eye on the Prize, The Promise of Transformation. And there we talk about what you might expect, what you can expect in working with EMDR in terms of change and transformation. And Michael beautifully talks about the profound change that he experienced in his life. And then the final chapter is called When You're Ready, Resources to Get You Started on Your EMDR Journey. And we help people think about how to find an EMDR therapist, the kind of questions to ask when you're getting into therapy, and really help people to recognize the options they have as they seek treatment for themselves. And then at the back of the book, we have a whole bunch of recommended resources for people to take advantage of if they really want to dig deeper. Michael, could you share your personal story with us? It's pretty incredible. So thank you for being so courageous for doing this and sharing it with the readers, but also with our listeners. When I entered treatment with Dr. Magavita, I knew that a lot of bad things had happened to me when I was younger, but I never conceptualized them or thought of them as traumatic. So I never thought of myself or, or never actually thought of those um, episodes or occurrences having anything to do with my adult emotional struggles I've having the present day. I never thought of myself as a, as a trauma victim or a trauma survivor. And also I could constantly remember some of the things that happened to me, but in other instances, I only had fragments of memories that really didn't add up and make a whole lot of sense to me. As I came to understand my trauma story, it was with the help of Dr. Magnavita and with EMDR therapy, which I'd never experienced before I started seeing him. And in my case, my trauma history started in actually pre-verbal infancy in what Dr. Maggie referred to as willful neglect on both of my parents' part. I'll give you one little anecdote. When I was probably two or three years old, I'd be put in the backyard barefoot in a diaper in Denver, Colorado with no supervision whatsoever. And I would, typical me, I'd find my way out of the backyard into the back alley and wander out into the street and then down to the intersection and eventually, thank God, literally a neighbor would see me and walk me back to the house and return me to my whoever was home at the time. I don't even know who that would have been. I also had to deal with a bully at home. My, my older brother was a formidable bully, and I had a bully at school. Anybody listening who's ever dealt with being bullied, it's a horrible existence because you live in a state of terror all the time. You never feel safe. So in my history, I had emotional uh, abuse, physical abuse, and sexual abuse as a part of my trauma story. And you add it up and it was a child who really, a boy who, who, you know, couldn't focus or tune into anything really because my brain was short circuited. And so for the longest time, take something like reading, I couldn't read. I was what my mom referred to or always told me was I was an accident prone child. So I had probably six concussions on my forehead before I was five years old because I would just fall and land on my forehead, you know, down to the ER again. So I would say aside from all those things, I was fine. <laughs> so how did that manifest in your adult life, not having addressed the trauma or you didn't really know about it? What kind of behaviors happened to you? How did you struggle emotionally and psychologically? As a function of neglect, which is one of the first things I got into with Dr. Magdavita because it was so profound and I was so unaware of it, I grew up starting again pre-verbally, feeling alone, unsupported, unloved insecure and bottom line worthless at the, the inference of a child. I remember showing a picture again from Denver. I was maybe two or three years old, a picture of me and my three or two siblings at the time. 
And he immediately responded by saying, I look like a refugee from a war-torn country with this just blank stare on my face. He said, that is, that's, that's just trauma. You know, I could spot it a mile away. You know, I was desperate, you know, at very earliest age possible to escape the situation, the feelings I was having. So I started building a false persona of this sort of perfect person for the outside world. I became an achievement and status addict or junkie and a workaholic. And on top of that, I was really unable to form or even understand any kind of authentic or intimate relationship building or relationships. And then over literally about 40 years, I would have the same three recurring nightmares that never were any less terrifying anytime I would have them. I remember three years ago, falling out of bed in, in a state of complete terror. And it's the same three. And I never knew where they came from, or why they kept repeating and looping. And I also suffered from something that I didn't understand at the time, but I understand now, which was phobias. But I didn't know that's what they were. So since I was a boy, I couldn't use a public restroom. I was afraid of heights. And then later on in life, post-pubescent life, any suggestion of intimacy with a woman was totally panic-inducing, completely uh, paralyzing. And as strange as this will sound, I thought this was just the way I was. I, I had no idea these phobias could be attached to or the result of something in my earlier life. And as I got older, drinking became uh, a theme, drinking excessively and blacking out was a common event. And then I started adding Vicodin with alcohol as a means of further numbing and escaping. Was this going on when you were seeking treatment with Dr. Magnavita? My career was uh, in advertising. And for about 35 years, and since I started that career, I, I always wanted to work at Ogilvy and Mather in New York. And I was there for about seven years, so I, I made it to my goal, long-term goal. And when I got laid off, I felt like I just drove off a cliff because I was suddenly unemployed. I felt completely lost at sea after after 30-plus year career in advertising. All of a sudden, my high-paid, high-status job was gone. And I started feeling increasingly helpless. And my fear and anxiety levels just seemed to grow by the day. And then the weird thing was, at the same time, I felt like frozen. I, I was unable to put my life in gear or move forward for the first time ever because I, I left such, led such a compelled life. And I really got to an emotional nadir, a, a real low point. And drinking and biking abuse and staying all, out all night and blacking out and not remembering how I got home, those that got more and more common. And then a point came where my sister told me or asked me the pivotal question, which is, are you serious about getting better or not? And she recommended Dr. Magnavita to me. I knew I couldn't go on and say that I was in. So I called him and I was like counting the days to get up to him to start this next leg of my journey. Wow. So what was the therapy like for you? It was different from the very first moment, unlike anything I'd ever experienced before, because to give you an analogy, talk therapy for me, again, this is just for me, was like reading about pepperoni pizza. EMDR was like smelling it and tasting it and chewing it and swallowing and digesting a slice of pepperoni pizza. So completely different as far as that goes. And the other thing that was remarkable right off the bat was witnessing the release from my being both mentally, emotionally, and physically of these stored feelings of grief waves and rivers of grief and sadness and anger and loneliness that I realized had been buried deep inside since I was a child but had no idea. I also experienced uh, you know pretty strong somatic memories that have been trapped in my body where your body remembers 
what happened and it, it doesn't forget. And, and when you're in the embryo therapy process, that, that comes to the surface as well. So these all sort of were sessions with Dr. Magavita. They would come in, swell up in me, pass through me, and then this distinct feeling of they're gone and never to come back again which was a profound sense of relief every time I left his office. Yeah, and, and so I, I came to finally understand what was missing in terms of my early development, and then to be able to make or discern a connection between my abuse, early neglect, and my present-day symptoms. It was also a way that enabled me to connect with the younger parts of myself, and that was a concept that took me a while to understand, younger parts of self, younger parts of yourself, that had been hidden and been hiding deep inside me, but that but were still there. And I was eventually able to bring healing and nurturance to those younger parts of myself. So now, do you continue on with the therapy or tell us how your life has changed or what it looks like now and the huge success with your book? How is life different now? I'll tell you, I think the principle of EMBR therapy is the objective is to address the issues and then release the client back into life so they can go live their lives, not to spend your life in therapy. So for starters, the nightmares went away finally after 40 plus years. Phobias went away for the first time in my life. The PTSD symptoms, the addictive behaviors all just stopped. And I started taking care of myself versus duplicating the neglect that I suffered. That went away and I started taking care of myself. The other crazy thing was the EMDR just completely wiped away this fake persona that I constructed over so many years. And I found myself living and behaving in an authentic way versus being locked in this compulsive goal set, goal achieve, status junkie, never ending cycle. And so my obsession with status, which was all encompassing, I, I assure you, and it's, and it's all the trappings of status just evaporated. And I look back at my old self. I, it's like I don't even recognize that person. Importantly, it opened the door, the intimacy door for me in my life, which started with my friendships, which became much deeper and much more intimate, and also started to be able to think about the possibility of initiating romantic relationships in relationship with women for the first time in my life, where there wasn't this immediate, complete panic-inducing uh, reaction uh, just at the contemplation of it. And then I have to say, the other door, and which I never in a million years would have expected, which was open, was a relationship with my brother, who was my bully growing up, and from whom I was estranged my entire life. And it's a relationship that the two of us never, ever thought we would ever have. And he has since, about eight months ago, started his own EMDR therapy journey, and our relationship, I would say, it may sound strange to say this, but is, is a very intimate relationship also. And he's the only brother that I have. So I, I would say for your audience, the best way I can try to describe that is that I, I traded in my old operating system, which was fraught with worry and anxiety and nightmares and fears. I remember waking up in college with just this profound sense of dread and not knowing why. Trade that in for a new operating system where I wake up and I can just be. It has nothing to do with any of those other things. And just uh, what kind of day is it? And what's the weather like? What I have to so It's completely free of all those things which were with me for my whole life up to that point. So you have no glimmers of any of that anymore? No. And actually, I will tell you that one of the things Dr. Magnavita is I saw him over a course of two years. And he made it very clear at the end. He said things, for example, as you explore intimacy in your life, you might feel like you want to come back and things might come up and 
He said, this, my door is always open. You're welcome to. And I have been back to see him. But I think his point of view is that once you have addressed and processed the traumatic memories, once you have been able to draw, you, you have your own base, what we call a site map in the book. So you can finally see what went on in your life and what role everyone, all your people in your life played. Then you should be going out and living your life because you're effectively being you know, set back to, to factory settings. So you can go out and explore your life and discover what you want and don't want. And that's kind of the whole philosophy. You did mention too that during your sessions with EMDR, it sounds like you did have to start focusing on taking care of yourself. What did that look like? He didn't tell me this at the time. This is when Debbie interviewed him. Debbie spent actually a day with him. When he first laid eyes on me, he he could see immediately this is a person who is not taking care of himself. And said he didn't he didn't start with that when he saw me. You just sort of get in the in sort of a narrow, narrow, more narrow existence. And you, your day is spent with worry and, and like, you know, I'm going to end up homeless and I'm going to be that guy in front of Walgreens with, with a blanket over me in the middle of winter. And, and like, I, I um, you know, just, just this sort of doom and, and, and dread, um, you, you know, taking care of yourself is the last thing on your mind. I just want to jump in. What I'm remembering from my conversation with Dr. Magnavita is he talked about that point in the therapy when you started to make that transition to caring for yourself. And he said you would come in and talk about what you were going to make for dinner in detail, just so excited about cooking for yourself. And you'd come in talking about books that you were starting to read, that you were reading for the first time in your life and actually taking in information and processing information and music and all these things that had just been inaccessible, unavailable to you previously. I remember telling him, and this may sound weird to you also, but I could never hear lyrics to songs. I never understood that a song was a story and the lyrics told the story of the song. The lyrics are just sort of like a, a wall of felt. And so now I'd hear a song, I could hear the lyrics of the song. The first time I would hear it, I could remember the lyrics. And so I knew the story. So there's one of many examples of how I was oblivious growing up, but it was starting to come together late in life. At the end of the book, in your appendix, you've got what is your ACE score? And I think that's interesting because, Michael, you came from, as you say in the book, a seemingly perfect family in a way, but yet you really had trauma. And a lot of people think that doesn't come with a lot of the things that you were born into. Can you talk about that and talk about the ACE score and how that works? That's an interesting irony because in my, the way that clinically, I think that the, my, my strategy to survive and avoid a sense of worthlessness was grand, called grandiosity, status and achievement junkie, focused on exactly what you're referring to. So my mother went to Dobbs Ferry and Sarah Lawrence. My father went to Deerfield Academy in Yale. And they're from wealthy families and very attractive. And in my grandiosity self, I would focus on that and the houses we had and how, and it was so funny because it was, it's like those movie sets where the front of the town, the Western town, you walk around the back and it's these things holding up just a facade because the reality was in my case, utter, utter and abject neglect from the very beginning. And I think Debbie sees on this early on where she thought, because I saw eight different therapists over 22 years, none of them who ever mentioned trauma. I'll, I'll say that again. I saw eight different therapists over 22 plus years. None of them mentioned the word trauma. None of them were mentioned where you do about EMDR. And it was just a case where, as Debbie pointed out, maybe they were missing that because of my socioeconomic background. Because if uh, look at his background, he's not going to be a candidate for X, Y, and Z. 
But that's ridiculous. That has nothing to do with the propensity for trauma whatsoever. In my case, it was it was just appearances couldn't have been farther from the reality in my case. And also, P.S., by the way, I have three other inmates you know, where, where my three siblings, where none of us escaped it. We all picked our own, ad, as Debbie said, our own adaptation, but we were all in the same asylum. Yeah, that was my question. So you mentioned it's so interesting that your brother is now going into EMDR. And did your sister go through it as well? She, I think she sort of touched on it, but for some reason, it wasn't something that she was comfortable with at the time, or I'm not exactly sure of the details, but to a certain extent, but my brother, who's one of 40 people who are now seeing EMDR therapists that Debbie has recommended, literally friends of friends or children of friends, 40, he's seeing a, a colleague of Debbie's who is, according to my brother, just absolutely incredible. And he's having the most unbelievable experience, as are we. If you asked either one of my sisters, there's no way anyone would ever have even imagined this being possible. It's beyond Stockholm syndrome. This guy made my life so miserable, so and physically being physically abused and emotionally so bad. And we have a call every Friday for at least an hour and a half for the last eight months that I look forward to every single Friday. Oh, that's so wonderful. So how do you think this book is going to be able to help others? I think your book gives people a framework to understand the range of difficulties and the symptoms associated with trauma. It normalizes and validates symptoms and struggles. It frames PTSD as a brain injury and thereby reduces stigma. It addresses people's questions about psychotherapy, about EMDR in particular, and about engaging in a relationship with a therapist. It provides hope and offers a compassionate stance regarding the difficulties that people are facing. There's a legitimate reason why you are struggling. And it provides people with language to use in discussing their difficulties and a path to finding a therapist that's right for them. My hope really is that it will increase the number of people who pursue EMDR therapy for themselves. And if they can find a good fit with an EMDR therapist, I really trust that they will find relief and an opportunity for post-traumatic growth. So Michael and Debbie, do you have any final messages you'd like to convey to our audience? I have two words and two words are don't wait. I spent over 20 years seeking relief for myself. I saw eight therapists over 20 years. I was exposed to talk therapy, CBT therapy, intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy, and none of them provided any meaningful or lasting relief for me. So when I was 61 years of age that I finally encountered EMDR therapy, and arguably two-thirds of my life has passed. But anyone who's listening to this, my message to you is if you're struggling or your spouse or your parent or a nephew or a child or a colleague, don't wait because now there are qualified, certified EMDR therapists all over the Come world, as you, are. you know, particularly also, you know, obviously in the United States, and they are just waiting. They're, they are available to you to seek them out and you can have an experience. Oh, and, and I don't want to sound like an infomercial, but it's just, I become such an advocate because of the effect it had on my life. And also because I'm, I'm witnessing what's going on with my brother in his life and our relationship. So he too has become an incredible advocate. As Debbie said, we're in a post-COVID traumatized world and there's there's so much trauma out there. This is just the most efficient and effective way to deal with it. I would say 
You don't need to figure things out before you pursue therapy for yourself. You don't have to know why you're stuck or what memories need to be addressed. Bring your entire hot mess, your fears, your confusion, your hopelessness to your EMDR therapist. And together, you will begin to make sense out of it all. Uh, You don't have to do this by yourself. When you step into EMDR therapy, you will have a guide. You'll have a helper. And also, however long you want healing to take, it will probably take longer. But that said, EMDR offers you an incredibly efficient path to a new life. And, you know, as we've mentioned a couple times in this program, we're in a mental health crisis right now in our country. And EMDR is clearly a therapy for these times. And I'm really grateful to have it to offer clients as we struggle forward after a couple of very difficult years. Your book is really amazing. And we're just so pleased that you guys came on our podcast to share it. I know both of us have learned so much, right, Dora? Oh, yeah. And you can get this book on Amazon, which is so great. And we just appreciate your expertise and Michael sharing your story. It's going to help so many people. So thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for joining us on HealthKick. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.